Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Cook. Welcome once again to another edition of Good Books Radio. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook, and with me today is Jack J. Hirsch. He is an expert in the field of troubled and distressed companies. He's a strategic advisor to investment institutions and corporate management and serves as a corporate board member and has a guest lectured in the business schools of MIT, USC, UC Berkeley, among others. This is his first nonfiction book. He lives in New York City. Uh, the book has nothing to do with his expertise in business. The book is entitled Death March Escape, The Remarkable Story of a Man Who Twice Escaped the Nazi Holocaust. Jack, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Listen, this is a very interesting tale. We're actually recording this around the time of Passover, which is eminently appropriate given the way the book is laid out. Uh, You are telling the story of your father, who was a Holocaust survivor, who survived death marches and actually escaped two death marches near the end of World War II. Um, And there's two voices in here. One is you as you're retracing his remarkable uh, survival. And the other is your father, who retells this story every setter, uh, every time the family gets together for Passover. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so the interesting thing about it, for from my standpoint, was that, you know, Passover is the story of the Jews leaving or escaping Egypt some 3,000 years ago. And, and in this, the Seder, which is the Hebrew name for the meal on the first night or the first two nights if you're Orthodox, um, you retell that story. My father would always digress from that telling to tell his own story of, of having been in a concentration camp for a year and then having escaped. And, you know, so the story was part of my life and my brother's life for our entire lives. And we never really thought this was going to sound a little odd, I, I suppose. We never really thought there was anything particularly amazing about it. I mean, this was just dad and just something that he did. And then um, I would have the rare occasion to actually tell the story myself. But one time, one day, about three or four years ago at a business dinner, somehow World War II came up and somehow this story came up and I told the story. And the next day I got a phone call from one of the guys I was having the dinner with. And he says to me, that he's from Louisville, Kentucky, and he never met a survivor in his life. He'd never met anybody that he knew to be related to a survivor. And the story changed his life overnight. He said his, his perspective, his outlook, his view on difficult things in his life, it, it will never be that hard again because after having heard my father's story, he realized just where prospectively these things have placed in his life, and it's changed him. Mm-hmm. And, and it, is, it is that powerful a story, and the, the graphic details uh, we'll lay some of that out if we can during the course of the interview. I uh, want to set a little context here because the 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 Nazi regime was going to eliminate all Jews who lived in Europe. And uh, early on in Poland, uh, they established uh, Auschwitz and, and other terrible death camps there. But your father was in uh, what was at, at that time part of Hungary. He was a, originally that community was in Romania, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And uh, Hungary had joined the Axis, although later in the war, Hitler invaded Hungary, uh, so they weren't great allies to have. Um, but, but it was near the end of the, the war when they finally started rounding up the Jews where, where your father lived, yes? That's right. So, so essentially, yes, as you pointed out, the Nazis had this idea of the final solution. They were going to kill every single Jew in Europe. 
Um, but as you got towards the end of the war, uh, Hungary had had a pact, as you pointed out, with Germany. Um, and so Hungar Hungary's Jews were allowed to remain in their homes and were not deported. But in the springtime of 1944, um, they actually were all deported to concentration, or most of them were deported to concentration camps, which is why a slightly disproportionate number of Hungarian Jews survived. But as you point out, Mutthausen, the concentration camp where my father was, was not a death camp. It was a work camp designed actually to work you to death. And the reason my father was sent there, most people who had been sent there were not Jews. They were incorrigible prisoners. They were incorrigible prisoners of war, intelligentsia, people the Nazi regime wanted to kill. But they, they were, it was a rock mine, and they figured they could get work out of them in the meantime while they were working them to death. But they were running out of people to kill. And so the Hungarian Jews, or some of them, some of the more able-bodied of, the, of them, were sent to this camp to, to work the mines. And my father was one of those people who was sent. Mm -hmm. And those mines were granite mines, and the work was, was brutal. They, they carried heavy loads upstairs. Uh, the, the flight of stairs was a frightening description. Talk about that, sir. Oh, yeah, the, yes. The, the, they were called the stairs of death. They were actually they were there for a a physical purpose of having to get up to the top of the mine, but they were used as torture for certain prisoners who they thought deserved it. Um, they had to carry 100-pound rocks on their backs. Um, they, they, they carried them in, in a large cluster of, of prisoners. So, you know, if you, as they were walking up, if you shot and killed the prisoner in the, in the front of the line and he fell back, they would all fall back like dominoes. It was, it was indescribable and, and, and incomprehensible that they would do things like this, but it was, that was part of the concentration camp life. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Hitler's elite corps, the SS, ran the concentration camps, and some of them were fairly sadistic. Uh, they had, for sport, do things like push the people off of the stairs to fall to their death. This goes back to the, the reason why, I guess, it took me so long to, to, to find my voice and tell the story. Uh, my father would tell stories like what you just mentioned, and it wouldn't occur to me that it was anything especially unique to have survived that, because after all, this was my dad. And then again, that dinner, um, where it was probably the tenth time something like that had, had occurred in my last twenty or thirty years. And I said, you know, clearly what my father went through, clearly what the Jews that survived went through, is something unique that needs to be told. Um, it, it's not unlike anything. It's not like anything that that you or I or, or people who are in normal society have ever come across, or will hopefully ever come across. Mm -hmm. Now, at the start of this, when they were rounding up people and putting them in the cattle cars, your father was actually in hiding at first. Yeah, he, he um, well, it wasn't that he was in hiding right then. He had the opportunity to, to hide. There was a Christian family who he was friendly with that offered to hide him. And my father had a decision to make. Does he go with his mom? My, my, my grandfather, his father had died of a heart attack a few weeks earlier. But when they were all being deported, they didn't know where they were going. One of the great secrets of Nazi Germany within Europe was that the Jews, when they were putting cattle cars and shipped to concentration camps, until the doors opened in those camps, they didn't know where they were going. They thought they were, being, they were going to resettlement camps. And my father had an opportunity to hide with a Christian family in his hometown in Hungary, or as you point out, or as Romania before and after the war. Um, and he chose to go with his mother and his sisters and brothers who were being deported, he thought, to a resettlement camp, which of course turned out to be a death camp. Yeah, and that, that's the first tragic moment that, that would bring tears is, is, 
is there was a selection process of two lines when they got off of the train, and his mother was in a, a different line than he was. Yeah, you, you yes. The, the, when you got off the, these trains, you, you spent anywhere from one night to four nights in these cattle cars, depending where you were being shipped from. But all the Jews had the same experience. And then they, most of them were sent to Auschwitz first. Um, and in, in Auschwitz, in this big reception yard, was a, was a process called selection, which is a, a nearly identical word in German, selection. And a SS captain, uh, who, one of them was Joseph Mengele, but he's the most famous of, of a number of them, would look at you for a split second and decide if you should go to the left or to the right. One line would then send you on to a work camp. And the other line, which was there were many, many more people in the second line, was sent you to a, to a gas chamber where you would be killed within the next couple of hours. Uh, I mean, I mean, when you think about the fact that you, you get off this train, some guy looks at you, and then maybe you die if he just doesn't like the way you look or you're because you're a frail woman or, or a young guy, uh, so not of work material, you're dead. Or too old, you're dead. It's, it's just a staggering concept. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the loss of, of his mother so early, your father lost his mother that day, and, uh, and when the smoke went up from the crematorium, some person who had been there a while uh, had a rather uh, gruesome sense of humor, I guess. Or... Yeah, so if, I've read other um, stories about the Holocaust, and they all seem to focus on this. Everyone who's written these stories seems to have some version of this have, have, having happened to them as well, where they would wonder what happened to the people in the other line. And they would ask somebody, and invariably the person they asked, you know, obviously someone who's been around a little while and is just just so inured to the horrors around them would just, cracking a joke is not quite the right way to describe it, but would say something with a smile on their face. That, that, that's where your family is. And you point to this chimney with black smoke coming out, and it's the crematorium chimneys. It's where people were, were burned after being killed in these gas chambers. And that's a memory that lives with all of them forever. Yeah. The family's going up in smoke, he said. Exactly. Uh, now, um, there's, a, there's a recurring theme throughout this as you retell the story, as you retrace the steps, and it is that your father told the story, and he left out the most awful details most of the time, and you never pressed him to give more detail. Yes, exactly right. It's a, so... You know, my father was an interesting, engaging, funny guy. Uh, I mean, he, you know, when you when you look at the popular press, whether it's movies or, or plays or television series, when they describe or, or books, when they describe a concentration camp survivor, invariably, what you come across is somebody who is morose, quiet, um, doesn't crack a smile, doesn't tell a joke, um, and probably hasn't since the day they were put in a cattle car. Just a, a very low, downbeat person. My father was the exact opposite. And, and part of the reason for writing the book was, in fact, besides what the story that I, I told about um, the impact on people, but to also to tell people, you know, there was this other type of person who survived. But the mirror image of that, that or the fact that my father was that type of guy also meant that when he told the story on the Seder or any other time that he told the story of his, of his survival and his escapes, he told it, told it in this light, engaging way that left out the worst of it. I mean, he, he described once something I always, I always remember him doing. He, he was nearly beaten to death one day. And when he would tell the story, he'd laugh. He'd crack up in the middle of telling the story. 
And then he'd pick himself up and, you know, keep the story going. But, okay, one, what is so funny about being nearly beaten to death? And two, why didn't I ever say, why are you laughing? What's so funny about this? Or, or for, for the other parts of his story, why didn't I ever push to really learn the, the nitty-gritty and horrific details of the things he was telling me? Um, and that's part, as you point out, part of the book that I explore. What is it about me that stayed away from this, that didn't want to know? Mm-hmm. Uh, he did suffer a lot, but he also must have been born under a lucky star because there's so many times when he should have lost his life. And for whatever odd, inexplicable reason, he survived a number of instances where he could have been killed. Yes, well... You know, you could look at it as, as luck. You can look at it as divine intervention of whether you believe in it or not, or, you know, any degree of which, to which you believe in it. My father actually believed it was divine intervention. And interestingly, as I got to know the historians at the concentration camp, it, it's now a memorial to what happened there. And there were a number of people who worked there who were historians, one who was very, very helpful to me in my research for the book and my learning about my father's past. But these people believed that my father had survived because of six separate miracles. They told me this early on, and they identified the miracles for me. Now, whether it's six or two or 60 isn't important, but the, but the point you're making about my father having been lucky or, or the benefit or the, the receptor of, of some kind of intervention, no question. The, the things he went through, the times he should have been killed um, and, and was not, I think it was just you know a remarkable series of events. Even just uh, being sent to the infirmary when, when sick or injured, as opposed to just letting him die. Yes, or, 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 or letting him be taken out in a selection, which there were selections not only when you arrived at the concentration camp, but on a regular basis within the camps. Um, my father was, you know, a 160-pound, 5'11 guy who weighed 80 pounds, or maybe at that point it was still 90 or 95 pounds. But for some reason, instead of being taken out and killed— he was allowed to go to an infirmary, which was there because it sounds like, why would the concentration camp have an infirmary? But in fact, some of the prisoners had skills, um, whether it was stonemasonry skills um, or there were other factories attached to the camp. And maybe they were experts in whatever the factory was producing. So they had an infirmary. And my father was sent there. And probably the fact that he was sent there is one of the reasons he survived that, that harsh winter of 1944 into 1945. Some of the details that he left out from time to time really were striking. He worked in the in the mines with the granite for a while, but at some point he got attached to a detail that that handled the the bathroom detail, and that was a yes. that was a terrible story. Yes. So um, my father perceived that you know working in a rock mine is you know by definition incredible physical labor, but the people in the camp who were responsible for taking. Um, the latrine, the latrines under every barrack, there were barrels that held human waste. And there were people whose job it was to take these barrels, empty them, clean them, and return them. So my father thought, well, that's a lot easier of a job. Okay, fine. It's disgusting, but it's easier. Mm-hmm. And he volunteered and, and worked on the, the capo, the, the captain who was in charge of that unit. And eventually the guy acquiesced. He was actually a, a gypsy, which, which made him basically on the same rung of of dislike by the Nazis as the Jews are. The Jews, gypsies, they, the, the, the infirm, the, um, the gays, the, the Nazis hated all of them. This gypsy took my father in, 
first day, my, my father's doing a good job working with the barrels. He's getting used to it. And the second day, he knocked one over. And it was he had to clean it up using his fingers, his fingernails, his own clothes, clean the, the, um, the path where he spilled the human waste. Made it, he had to make it spotless. Now, when my father would tell the story, he would say, yeah, I had to clean it up. I made it spotless, and I went on. And, of course, he would say it quickly, and he would laugh, and I would smile and maybe chuckle along with him, and that would be the end of it. And I finally did a little digging and talked to some relatives who knew more of the, the details of the story than I did, investigated what it meant to be in this latrine commando, it was called, and discovered that the way my father told it just left out you know, an enormous amount of, of detail about how incredibly horrific and difficult it was for him to have cleaned up that spill. And you had imagined that maybe he had a squeegee or something to help him scoop it up. Exactly. A squeegee and a mop and no, nothing. Not His own clothes. Mm-hmm. That's how he cleaned it up. And then he washed his own clothes afterward. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, wasn't given a minute's break in between. It, it wasn't like he, you know, he got to take the afternoon off to go, go take a shower. None of that. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't long for that latrine commando uh, after that. No. No, but, but, but that's an interesting point because then he went back to the stone, the rock mine commando that he'd been in. Um, you know, when you hear about stories in concentration camps or when you imagine what it must be like, the idea that you can work in a commando, commandos were units. Uh, it's the same word as the British Army likes to use and the, the German Army uses it too. So when you worked in a commando, if it wasn't working out, the idea that, well, maybe they would move you to another commando, it just doesn't make any sense. They, w- they would just kill you. And in fact, the great majority of the time, that's the stories you hear. But in my father's case, not only did he get to go back to this, this rock commando, the stone mine commando that he'd been in before, but early when he first got to the camp, he said he was a carpenter. My, my, my father is a very talented man, but he was not a carpenter. He spent two days in the carpentry commando, and they moved him to the rock commando. To this day, I'm stunned that he was able to move from one to the other without being killed in between. It's just, I don't know how he pulled it off. I, I, I think it's part of that intervention and it's partly his personality coming through. And I wrote about all of that. Mm-hmm. And you also wrote about something that, that I didn't know. And that, that was that these, these granite mines were actually a form of fascist capitalism. The, the, the people yeah. who were yes. in, in charge. Fact, the, the, but I, and I didn't know that until I began researching the book. So the SS you know, we know them to be the elite of the German troops and not only elite physically, but elite in terms of how they perceived Adolf Hitler as, as the be all and end all, you know, demagogue God. But the, the, the SS also had a business side to it. And it was essentially like, as I described it, it was like the mafia. Um, they ran a lot of industry in Nazi Germany and, and reap, you know, riches for having done it. And one of the things they did was they had they ran these rock mines because rock the granite these granite mines because granite was needed for track beds for railroads for uh, beds underneath uh, roadways the autobahns and of course for building facades. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that struck you when you got over there to visit various places where your father had been was that. Not all of it was uh, still standing. They had burned the wooden buildings and so on. But what kept coming up was how beautiful and green the countryside was. And there was these nice little homes along the way. Yes. So I think there were, there were a few aspects to that. The first thing was, and I, uh, one thing I describe is about how Mudhausen was on a hill. And from Mudhausen prisoners, they could see 
the beauty in the surrounding communities. Of course, they couldn't. It, it might as well have been on the moon, as, as I describe it. But it, it was. It is really beautiful pastoral countryside. Um, it's just a shame that that it was also where they put uh, Mudhausen, and my father's camp was actually two miles away, administered by by Mudhausen. It was called Guzen. They put these camps there, um, and I I think it it just ruined or or, or could have ruined the beauty of the place. I think it, it, but it is coming back. And I think it is possible to separate in your mind, the horrors that happened there from the beauty that is the surrounding area. But the actual camp that my father was in Guzan was, I said, two miles away. It, it was a sub camp. It was just like a satellite office. Um, that entire camp with the exception of a small memorial is now a community. It's a, it's a, it's not a pre-planned community, but it, it, it's, it's like a, it's like a gated community. Mm-hmm. And I don't have big issues with that, but I do find it very hard to understand how people can live on the grounds, not next door, not a block away, but on the grounds of a concentration camp where the figure is from that many, from that sub camp alone, 32 odd thousand people were killed. I think it's actually probably much more than that, mm-hmm. but it's only 32,000 that they could positively identify. I, I, it just it staggers my mind that people live there. I understand that it that the price was right, and people have to live somewhere. It just I just find it hard to understand personally. Yeah, there's one uh, visit you make uh, to a, a house that was formerly the, like the gatehouse and office area that somebody had converted uh, into a home and uh, put glass where there had been wooden doors, and you just you just had to see that house. Right, right. It, or as, as, as we'd say in New York, don't get me started. It, it's <laughs> like, I, yes, uh, you, you nailed it. This, at the entranceway to, the, to this concentration camp, Guzen, this satellite camp, um, there was a building, and the German name is Your House, and it doesn't really translate into anything in English, but it was an administrative building. It was, there was a gate cut out of the middle of, the, of the, the building, so you could put you know, two big trucks side by side and fit them through there. Well, some family took this building, and turned it into a private home. Um, and I, I had to knock on the door and meet this family. And, and to meet, I met only the wife, who seemed to be a relatively average, ordinary, you know, middle-aged mom and housewife. And, you know, that, was, that kind of took me a step back, because it's not who I expected to answer the door. But I, again, to sort of the point I was making about Guzan itself, to, to be able to live in this home that had once been a site where... The local pastor was tortured and killed, where prisoners were were kept as as uh, as well. Prisoners were kept as within a prison cell within these buildings as within this building as well. It just staggers my mind. Probably doesn't go far enough to describe how shocked I am. Mm-hmm. Now, there's another history trailing alongside the history of your father, and that is the Allied invasion of of the fortress Europe is is coming uh, and you talk about D-Day and Patton a good deal uh stories that I've read about in my history books and have been uh, you know mythified in the movie Patton and in the longest day and other movies perhaps uh as they make their progress across Europe coming closer and closer to where your father is housed meant that the Germans had to move and so that's when the death marches were big yes exactly so with Patton and his troops coming from the West heading East and with Russia coming West from the East, um, Russia was already, was, had 
had gotten close to Vienna, which was only 90, 95 miles away. And the Americans were still a couple hundred miles away. And the Germans got the idea. They, they, the Germans were back to the idea they didn't want any, any Jews surviving the war. But as I pointed out, there were Jews who were working in, in concentration camps where they were work camps. And there were also Jews in work battalions, which was basically hundreds or thousands of people at a time put together into a, what they would call a battalion to repair roads or bridges. The first thing the Germans did was move all of these Jews from the surrounding 100-mile radius surrounding Mutthausen into Mutthausen, something like 23,000 Jews. And, of course, the question would be, well, why don't they just kill them? It's just not that easy to kill that many people. So the first step was, let's put them on the road. We're not feeding them anything. Hopefully, they'll die on the road. And a number of them did. I don't know the figure. But once this 20-odd thousand Jews ended up in Mutthausen, beginning in April 1945, they were marched. 500 to 1,000 at a time each day, 34 miles south and west to another concentration camp called Gunskirchen. Gunskirchen wasn't really a camp. It was an enclosed barbed wire facility with a couple of buildings and nothing else. And of those 20-odd thousand Jews, about half of them died on the marches, which was the idea. Another 4,000 died in that camp because no food, no water, no sanitary conditions. My father was on the, one of the very first marches, and that was his first escape, recaptured, and then a couple of weeks later put on a new march, now April 16th, we know that date, um, escaped again. But yes, that, that was, as you point out, that was the genesis of those marches, to gather the Jews up and then find a, an expeditious way to kill them because they, they just couldn't shoot them all. In, in his first uh, escape, there was a time when he sat down to get rocks out of his shoe, and that was usually death, usually a a Nazi soldier would walk up behind you, put the gun to the back of the nape of the neck, and just blow you away. And somebody did not do that to him. Who One of the soldiers was very close and saw him and for some reason did not kill him. It, it's one of those miracles or divine intervention or luck that we, we talked about earlier. It's, it's inexplicable. My father sits down on the side of the road. The rule was if you went to the side of the road, they shot you. Sometimes they would ask you if you, if you could get up. If you couldn't, they shot you. And sometimes they wouldn't ask anyway. They'd just shoot you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's assuming you didn't die on the march by simply keeling over and being trampled or, or just running out of energy to live. Um, this SS trooper walked towards my father. Their eyes met. And he just kept on walking. My father was like rubbing his feet and, and, and he was incredulous. But that event gave my father the energy to get back on the road. And about a, and a couple of miles later, we don't know exactly where that happened, but we do know the intersection of his first escape exactly. And that surprise of not being killed gave him the energy to get back on the road and gave him the opportunity to get into that intersection. And as you read, he... It, at the moment that my father entered the intersection, refugees were streaming from his left to his right. They, they, they were supposed to wait for him to go through. They just didn't have the, the patience to wait. And they, they were crossing from his left to his right. And my father realizes that if he simply turned 90 degrees to the right, maybe nobody would notice. And he did it. And then he took two steps and he sees a raincoat on the ground and he puts it on. And now his concentration camp uniform is covered. And nobody, either nobody noticed or nobody paid attention or nobody cared, and he was free for a while at least. And the first place he came to, uh, he was turned in, and he went back. And, yeah, so, and- um, you know, again, this is sort of 
the difference between having heard my father tell the story and actually having been there. My father said he went a hundred yards or so, and then he knocked on a door. I always wondered why he went a hundred odd yards. Why not just go 10 and knock on the first door you see? And the answer turned out to be, I thought it was open fields. It wasn't. It was just the backs of buildings that had no doors. And then the road narrowed and there were homes on either side, sort of classic medieval European um, streets that have a long wall with doors in it. And he knocked on a door. Old woman answers the door. He says in fluent German, my father spoke eight languages at the time, and nine if you include English. Um, and he was fluent in all of them. And he said in fluent German, um, I'm hungry, would you feed me? And she took him in, and she gave him some food, and she let him wait in her backyard. She had a little backyard. And then about 10, 15 minutes later, she comes up to him, and she says, you got to go. And my father, he's, look, he's a teenager. He's a 19-year-old kid. Um, he's on grass for the first time in a year. He's had a meal of any size, of any real size, for the first time in a year, and he took a sweet time. And in the time it took him to get himself going, she called the SS. Mm-hmm. And um, inexplicably, again, the SS chose not to kill him, but to take him to the local police station. And of course, uh, we're out of time, unfortunately. Uh, this is a great story. The, the second escape, he was sheltered by a, a couple that looked after him, even though they had, that were also uh, harboring SS troops in their house, which is an interesting yes, part of the story. Yeah. And the the allies got to him, and it took him a while to recover in a hospital, almost a year, I think it was. Uh, but this is uh, a fantastic... 18 months, actually. Wow, yeah. a year and a half, yeah. So he was 80-pound scarecrow who made it. Uh, this is a fabulous story. We've been talking with Jack Hirsch, who's the author of Death March Escape. I remind our listeners, if you don't hear our regularly scheduled broadcast on the air, you can catch up with us at YouTube on our channel, Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. Thanks for listening. <laughs>